Welcome back to This Film Not Rated, or welcome to a new This Film Not Rated. I'm Eric. I'm Curtis. And today we're going to talk once again about movies we watched this week, movies that we're passionate about with full spoilers and, of course, complete objectivity. No, that's a joke. (laughs) We've been trying to make a point (laughs) with this, and we've never been very direct about it because, you know, I think both of us are a little non-confrontational, especially when it comes to wanting to be sure-footed in what we believe before we talk. Uh But here's the thing. I think people are tired about us talking up what we're going to do. So you guys are going to find out in the title what movies we're talking about today. No muss, no fuss. We are going to start as objective as possible. And you can see us grow out of that as we start to talk about why we love the movies we love. So today we are going to start with the TFNR gauntlet. And the same rules apply. If Curtis makes it to the end then he will officially go into our Hall of Fame as someone who has actually been completely objective about a movie. Has not happened in history as long as, as far as I know. So here we are, Curtis. The first movie that you watched was? Watcher. Brand new movie starring Micah Monroe. So let's tackle this immediately. Curtis. In the gauntlet, is the movie Watcher good or bad? Based on what I've seen with uh, a a little bit of research, the movie's gotten pretty split reviews as far as the audience rating goes. It is a slow burn, like atmospheric horror movie. So if that's not your thing, uh, it might not appeal to you. I'm going to give you that one, mostly because I hadn't brought the app up with the buzzer yet. Freebie. Fine. (laughs) What was your favorite scene? There is a scene at the end of the movie that the only way I can describe it as is the money shot where certain lines <laughs> uh, that you've heard in the past kind of coalesce into what the scene is. So it's the payoff to a bunch of setups? Yes. You might say there have been multiple primers or, you know, strokes almost <laughs> leading up to this and then it pays off in this as you call it money shot it's it pays off in a very uh, explosive way would everyone call that explosive though you want to justify it or you just want to let it go i mean i can justify it. it's literally a gunshot Okay, so it's explosive because it's literally a gunshot. You know what? I might rescind that. Okay, so, so okay, take that point back. Just play the same noise backwards. You know what that sounds like? <laughs> oh, okay, so what would you remove from the movie? The movie is building up an, an atmosphere of uh, para- paranoia and whether or not the lead actress, Micah Monroe, is... Uh, actually being followed or, or, or not. Uh, I personally think that uh, you could build the suspense better if you were to remove from the... Okay, fine. Uh, like very early on in the film, they introduced the idea that a serial killer is, is out and about. And I think like just for the atmosphere and the ambiance of the film, it would have been better if you just leave everything up to the viewer's imagination and let it fester even more. 
if you would just word that as you could have left it up to the viewer's imagination by removing some things. Right. That is an objective truth. So, <laughs> but that's okay. You got buzzed. So now you can't win. So that's fair. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Who was the best actor and who was the worst actor? I'm split on best. It's, it's either Micah Monroe or it's what's his name. Oh, well, what's his name is so memorable. Of course. That's why he would be, you know, yeah, shut up. <laughs> Burn Gorham. It's either Micah Monroe or, or, or a Burn Gorham. And I don't know which one to pick. But you're saying it is either one of them. It is either one of them. It's still and the like worst a, actor. It's, it's, it's Francis Carl Gluzman, the, the freaking husband. I hate that character. Give your favorite quote from the movie. The first one that came to mind is this quote of... Uh, you don't want to be caught with a bloody throat and an I told you so look on your face. That's the first quote that came to your mind? It's the first quote that came to my mind. That's a fact. Moving on. So what is this movie missing? I can't think of anything that the movie's missing personally. Okay, uh, you can't think of it. So what did you enjoy from this story? As I said before, it's a slow burn. The, the movie is like slowly introducing you to these, uh, this idea of, of uh, someone watching and then a killer's on, on, on the loose. And as the movie go, goes on, more and more things just kind of slip into the frame that just kind of eat away at you. Uh, until like, at least for me, like I was getting just as jumpy as uh, Micah Monroe was in, in, in the film. So like just that overall atmosphere of feeling unsafe is uh, what I enjoyed about it. Okay. So, did you learn anything about making movies from watching this? I'm always curious about different ways that can build suspense because there's a lot of different... I mean, there's there's the bomb under the table theory. There mm-hmm. is the uh, Christopher Nolan drop yourself to be in the maze with the character instead of hanging above it. Don't give mm-hmm. yourself information the characters don't have kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, everyone has their different idea of what makes something work. And it's nice to listen to people who have been successful, but I'm always looking to see like, why does something work? And this is, this is something that would, yeah, this one kind of goes in the route of, uh, you only have as much information as the character does as, as the lead, as, as, as lead heroine does. And that's where most of the suspense building comes from. Okay. So what would make you watch this again? What this uh, film gave me was kind of like an an old school style of uh, building tension and uh, and horror mm-hmm. uh, that is so different from say uh, and and it chapters one and two or uh, a thirteen ghosts that uh, that's why I would go back to it for a a modern take on uh, old film language. Okay, no, it's subjective anyways because you're yeah. talking about that's like your opinion of why you would watch it again. So right. once you give your opinion, you're screwed. But <laughs> I'm curious if you can break down just a little bit for them. Put that in your own words. Tell me. Uh, so like when she's uh, like in a grocery store and the camera's following her, the camera's focused on her and then just out of focus to like the right of frame, you see someone slip in and it looks like the person that was just sitting directly behind her in the movie theater. And as she notices it, the camera focuses in on that. 
Oh, so the camera is literally, it's kind of an under control dictating that you see what she sees kind of thing. Yeah, like for most of them, there are some, there are some shots where that obviously isn't the case, but for the most part, the camera is doing that. Um, so would Nicolas Cage have made this movie better? Uh, honestly, I, 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 I honestly think that he might have ruined it. That buzz is just because that's a lie. <laughs> when I think Nick Cage in a horror film, I think like wacky, over the top, like Sam Raimi, blood and gore violence type. This is not that. This is like the opposite of that. So, so you made it out of the gauntlet. And you know what? I just, I just want to know, what about this made you want to watch it? So uh, I was going to see, which I think I was going to see Jurassic World Dominion for the first time. <laughs> st- Sorry. <laughs> See the vein in my head? Yeah. That's about to pop. Because of Dominion? You mentioned Jurassic World. (laughs) Dominion. (laughs) Sorry. And a simple trailer for this popped up. And it instantly reminded me of Rear Window. So what I thought I was going into was like like this old school Hitchcockian, like kind of suspense thriller type thing. And I kind of got that. Yeah. That sense of paranoia is Hitchcockian. Hitchcock is defined... I, I had to I had to do a lot of this in school because there was something so specific about him that they're insisting that people understand how he transcended uh, the genres that he was making or the the audiences he was appealing to and was able to make things bigger than that. And that comes from a few particular staples. And in studying all of that, what it basically comes down to is your main character, are they getting wrapped up in something and they're not sure if they're safe? Are they in the wrong place at the wrong time? Do the people have the wrong man, like out of step? Um, Is there a weird sense of humor in the stakes escalating? So things are getting more threatening, but also it's, it's almost played for laughs. So most of those I can agree with, except for the played for laughs part. Okay. So like, that's the thing. There are thrillers that build and Hitchcock is always going to be someone who had an influence. Like, you almost can't show anyone take a shower in a thriller without Hitchcock. Because okay. the second you show the shower head, mm-hmm. you're... It's, you're psycho, yeah. Yeah, you're referencing psycho. Like, even, even if you're not at all referencing psycho, like you're watching The Incredible Hulk, mm-hmm. he, he looks up right at the shower head and then it turns into the machine gun in a PTSD moment. Mm-hmm. They're referencing psycho. Gotcha. It's, it's clearly unintentional and unrelated. Okay. Well... But, uh, regardless, that that's what caught my attention is is like this this idea of, of of seeing like like Hitchcockian filmmaking in modern day. So the uh, director is a is is a woman named uh, Chloe uh, Okuno, uh, half Japanese director. Uh, this is her first theatrical film. Before this, she did a short film called Slut, which uh, apparently has a lot of similar themes to it, but is very different in tone. the The script went through several rewrites. Uh, in 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 the beginning, like uh, when it was first written, it was supposed to take place in New York, and the entire story was going to be like split between uh, the perspectives of uh, Michael Monroe's character and and uh, Francis, the husband. Uh, and at some point, uh, what's his name, uh, Roy Lee, I want to say, walked in, who has been an executive producer on a plethora of of horror and thriller uh, films, including It's Chapter One and Two. Uh, 
Oh, is he responsible for why random movies are like from a producer of it? Like, I, I think so, because he also did The Strangers, The Grudge, one and two, uh, The Ring, one and two. Uh, the got the new Godzilla movies. So he's like an executive producer. He's yeah, like a he's, big wig. He's okay. like literally everywhere. But like literally he's been involved in like at least three films a year since something like 2003, 2004. He's, he's been just like constantly working. So he came in, uh, read the script and, and said to the director, hey, instead of this, let's let's make it a, a spiritual uh, successor uh, to Rosemary's Baby, where uh, it's shot completely from the woman's perspective and, uh, and you don't know who's the threat around her. Hmm. Uh, but... The reason I bring up the uh, the uh, it was originally going to be shot in New York. Uh, when the director found out they, that they were going to be shooting in, in Bucharest, Romania, she rewrote the script to fit that. And oh. so and so 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 now not not only is this just a story about paranoia, she is isolated with language. The only person in the country that she can talk to right now is her husband. She's mm. completely isolated from society. Not exactly right what you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. It's, uh, and uh, the reason why she did that, once she wanted the uh, the script to match where the filming location was, which I always liked the idea of, of like shooting on location. So the entire thing was shot in 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 Bucharest, Romania. They couldn't shoot the apartments like like uh, on location that the the interior of the apartments had to be a set. And uh, mostly because they couldn't find anything that suited their needs for what was in in the script. So they had to like for this very simple, what looks like not a whole lot of digital effects uh, movie, they had to use a, a, a whole lot of digital matting to make everything line up. I think uh, Chloe said that uh, they, they were kind of like David Finchering it the entire way through. David Fincher in general seems to be a go-to for people who are looking for a certain level of control and that digital aesthetic, because he's a director who embraces digital a lot. His movies are digital and he owns it as cinema. You know, it's sort of like the the antithesis, but also not of Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> yeah. Him and Danny Boyle are people who were like, you mean I don't need to hold a film camera? Dope. And then Danny Boyle went and made 28 Days Later on like a camcorder. Like. Right. Then I mentioned before how the original script was uh, or was originally set up to be told from 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 both uh, Micah's and Francis's per perspectives uh, at uh, because of the the rewrites it, it shrunk down to just seeing her point of view so at some point I, I don't know if they did the best they could with rewriting the husband because at, at some point he just keeps asking while she's clearly traumatized and scared of going outside he over, over and over again keeps asking is there anything I can do to help is there anything I, I, I can do to help and at, at some point I'm just tired of him saying that it, it, it comes off as pandering and and patronizing by the like end he's of not doing anything so why are you keeping asking like, exactly okay that's fair other than that like everything else like I, i've mentioned on twitter like this probably has one of the most effective jump scares that i've seen in in a while and the reason why i said it, it's the, the jump scare that got me that actually made me like jump in my seat it's very reminiscent of cat people the the famous luton bus jump scene but uh, i i do uh i i talked about Spurn gorman He's the guy, I believe he plays one of the scientists in uh, Pacific Rim. Oh, the one who's in The Dark Knight Rises. Yes, him. Yeah. 
uh, he's the guy that is that is playing the uh, the uh, watcher, and I could not figure this guy out. Like the throughout the entire movie, like the he's it looks like he's just going across his day to day. When he gives his explanation on why he's watching her through the window, it sounds believable. And like I could kind of understand that. It's still a little creepy. And then just ugh. it's so. I don't know, subtle, I don't think does it justice. It's just like ingrained into the character. It's weird. But like, he is so unsettling and nerve wracking by just standing there and staring at you. It's it's, it's one of those things where I 100% believe you because of the way the guy looks and it makes <laughs> me feel bad. So he was talking about how Willem Dafoe, you know, in, in the original Batman, um, not said, said bringing that up for any, you know, wink, wink reason. In the original Batman, one of the creators was like, I don't know why we didn't just get Willem Dafoe. The guy looks like the Joker. And Willem Dafoe once mentioned on Saturday Night Live, you know, you know, everyone always says that I should do the Joker because I look so much like him, which is, of course, you, what you want to hear about yourself. <laughs> Micah Monroe is fantastic and deserves I mean, more attention. This is the only movie I've seen her in, but she's but she also is is the lead heroine. And, you know, it you follows. haven't seen it follows. I haven't seen it follows and I haven't seen the guest, the other movie that that she plays in. She's in the guest and she's in villains with Bill Skarsgård, the one that we talked about a while ago. Oh, she is. I don't know what it is about her. She's always such unique, interesting characters. Well, uh, that, that also goes into, uh, you know, uh, Watcher, because like at, 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 at the beginning of the film, she's like this bright, vi vibrant, I'm going to stand out because that's who I am character. And as mm -hmm. she gets more and more paranoid, like at, at the beginning, she's wearing like red clothes, some stuff that makes her pop. And at the end of the film, she's wearing clothes that blend into the background and she's further away from the camera than she was in the beginning. So it's yeah. just like visually drawing away. And in Villains, she's a basically just a, an on the road thief trying to make her way before she decides to settle down on a beach. You know, it's mm -hmm. such a tonally different character. And then when she's in It Follows, everyone is in this sort of uh, depressed not emotionally, but depressed uh, affect of like state of mind where they're just sort of attentive and watchful and quiet and patient. And it's again, a totally different from either of the other two characters. The only one that I haven't seen, uh, well, I haven't seen Watcher, but uh, I need to see the guest. But as far as I know in the guest, she plays someone who lives in the home. And so even if she's playing up to your typical teenager, mm -hmm. She's not done that in any of the movies I've described before. Um, so, all right. Well, then I'm going to hijack this mofo. And go and on right on to Batman Returns. The other Batman film where he just doesn't give a shit about killing people. More so. He literally smiles in a guy's face, straps a bomb to him, knocks him into a container, and walks away and does not look at the explosion. Hey, I, and actually, you know, what's funny is I, I learned a little tidbit about how it's kind of true. My theory was uh, coming off of the 80s, if you chose this character to not live up to that sort of action shoot -em up thing, mm -hmm. it, it, people, people need a hook, a reason to accept Michael Keaton, who they had no faith in as this action hero that can live up next to them. And apparently Sylvester Stallone's reaction to Batman was that it changed cinema. And Batman is kind of a huge milestone. If you think we had Star Wars and it had Luke Skywalker and he wasn't exactly, you know, the beat his chest 80s sort of hero. Uh -huh. 
but Star Wars was its own sci-fi thing. Batman took the action hero and instead of having to spend all their time in the gym, just strapped on muscles. And it became more about the aesthetics and the special effects than the work of the character and the humans. And Sylvester Stallone is like, you know, I wish I could have just strapped on my muscles, but I had to spend all the time in the gym, you know, and that's his training for the thing. And it's interesting because this is they, these two movies are so much more about character and art and design and a backdrop and then compromises commercially uh-huh. to land somewhere in the middle. And it's it really did change things from then on forward. If you think that's 89 and we move into the 90s, uh-huh. we're talking about we're starting to burst into cashing in on IPs and having these things be special effects driven films. We have Will Smith star in Independence Day two years after this. So the landscape of what the blockbuster looks like is shifting into these mega blockbusters that are super pumped up with a bunch of funding to hit the special effects quota and keep upping the ante in terms of action and explosions and things. But that's not what Batman Returns wants to do. Oh my gosh, if, if the MCU's aesthetic was Tim Burton, you know how each one of the MCU is like, it's an MCU aesthetic movie, but with a particular slant towards a, a genre, uh-huh. right? If you just pretend that the MCU aesthetic is Tim Burton's aesthetic, yeah, this would be the romantic comedy, okay? Yes, it is covered in death, and yes, it is covered in the macabre, but all of that is, is sort of laced into the background of that. I mean, like, like I think Ed Wood, uh, Edward Scissorhands, um, even Nightmare Before Christmas, all of these are laced with death and, and all this stuff is a backdrop, right? Right. And so where Nightmare Before Christmas is an undeniable romance and something heartfelt, you still have people trying to poison and kill each other and all this sinister stuff going on played, yeah. you know, light. Now in Batman, and this sort of beautiful twisted parallel is brought up mm-hmm. where you have Catwoman who becomes Catwoman and it's like she's she's killed but in a sense she is also split and they constantly have the characters mirror each other with some of the cheesiest dialogue ever but also some moments i really enjoy and it's bruce a a scene that really just wraps this whole thing up for me Uh is pretend it's not a tim burton movie for a second pretend it's just a billionaire with a secret any secret but fill in the blank for a rom-com okay and the girl fill in the blank for a rom-com. So I think like how to lose a guy in 10 days. So they're at the mansion and Bruce Wayne is like, I have to go because I saw something that, that Batman is needed for. And she's like, oh crap, that's the thing I set up with the penguin that I need Catwoman for. So the both of them makes an excuse to Alfred and tells them to tell the other one, I'm sorry, I have to leave. Mm-hmm. And then they immediately go meet as Batman and Catwoman. And then it's this this gorgeous thing when they both end up as Bruce Wayne and Selina mm-hmm. at a at dance. And Batman recites back to her quotes that she said when she was Catwoman, once he pieces something together. Mm-hmm. And the, the reaction is like, she's like, oh crap, do we have to start fighting? Like, <laughs> it's like I don't want to fight now. Right, because... <laughs> And there's this this balance where Bruce Wayne is still struggling to explain what he is. And I definitely see trails that Michael Keaton talks about in this of wanting 
to define the character to really get a movie that talked about how he became Batman. Uh-huh. Because in the first one, he's dancing around how to explain himself to Vicky Vale. In the second one, they make it really clear he has no idea what's going on in him, that he's divided as a person between Batman and Bruce Wayne. Uh-huh. And he sees that in Selena and Catwoman. And he's like, we're the same. We need to be together. But Selena ultimately can't let go and has to go for revenge. And, and that's just the beginning. This, this, this core romantic comedy happens in the middle of just this macabre, twisted. You know, the Penguin is the Penguin kind of iconically. Mm-hmm. But there's an icon that I never pay attention to. And that's that one of the umbrellas he carries around the most is like a child's mobile. Oh, It's got toys hanging from it so that it can spin. That's a nice touch. Yeah, because, you know, his whole thing is he's fractured over being abandoned by his parents. Yeah. And it's like he's never letting go. Mm. You could say that there are interweaving themes uh, through characters that play out through the film. And they don't necessarily gel to me. Okay. There are so many great scenes because they do such work building the characters that just letting them play off of each other, like Catwoman dancing around, potentially eating his birds. So he picks up a, a umbrella and threatens to stab her cat. So she opens her mouth and lets the bird fly out. Like, and the whole question is, can I trust you? Mm-hmm. And they sort of visually establish, you don't cut me, I don't cut you. Okay. Anyways, I don't know. What's your experience with Batman Returns? When, when's the last time you saw it? I've only ever seen it one time. It was probably something like 15 years ago. I remember enjoying it, though. Like, culturally, this this film was, like, a, it was a big deal. Because, like, I have, like, very early memories of, like, uh, being at a childhood friend of mine's home. I'm not going to say their name because, you know, they have no I, you know, reasons. But uh, I'd be playing with them in like a, a, a room and I would look up on one of their shelves and they'd have statues of, of the penguin from that movie. And like, it was, it was my first time experiencing something like that where uh, someone liked something so much that they had like these very like well-detailed and articulated uh, uh, statues that are just decorating a, a home. It, it's funny how much Batman, those movies have, have this cultural seepage it's still an appropriate word i think for batman returns i love this movie by the way but it is mm-hmm. definitely gooey um <laughs> i mean it, it, it does i mean like a, a good portion of it does take place in the sewers so the re- there's obviously the relationship that they're trying to go tim burton is trying to realize his vision uh-huh. and then famously when he was done he started interviewing for a third batman got into a creative team meeting and five minutes in, he said you don't want me to make a third one and they were like, no, we do. And he's like, no, you don't. And he walked out. And like, he was no bad blood. He just was like, obviously you guys don't want my thing anymore. You know, because they had to make deals with McDonald's and do toys and merchandising and all that. But then kids went to go see the movie and there's these cheeky little videos of like a kid being like, I've seen the movie multiple times now because it bothered me so much. And like, <laughs> You know, it's yeah. it's so weird, and yeah. it's that disingenuous sort of '90s culture shock thing. Yeah, where you show someone something weird and scary, and all of a sudden they're like, "And you tried to peddle this to kids because it was at McDonald's," and it's like, "Yeah, yeah, okay, but the parents have control." And right, right, it's not no, like, like we lived. We people forget we lived in an age where media was moving so slowly. Yeah, no, like 
that these uh, people had to work to make a big deal out of this. Like, yeah. And so it's, it's sort of uh, like, I love Christopher Walken. I, I like all the performances like across the board, mm-hmm. just live up to whatever they're trying to serve in the moment. I'm not sure how well it gels considering how hard it was for my brain to track exactly what the story is. The first couple of times I saw it, I'm slower in general as a person, uh-huh. but you know, eventually it clicks and I, I, I enjoy what's going on here. It's just, it's, it's again, it's so unique. You're never going to get a Batman movie like this. You're always going to get a Batman movie. That's trying to be Batman and reference the comics and do all this. You're not going to get something that's trying to shape its own world. All right, well, that being said, let's get on to something a lot less serious and a lot more creepy with John Carpenter and, uh, you know, the Prince of Darkness. The Prince of Darkness. Which is, let me just ask you straight up, the Antichrist, right? It's the essence of Satan is yeah. being contained inside this old church. And I bring a whole bunch of mathematicians and researchers in to study it and see what's going on. That's, that's the whole concept. So research team, did not know that. So what made you want to watch this? It first came to my attention uh, back when Red Letter Media was doing their, their review on all of John Carpenter's films. And, but also it's John Carpenter. I, I like John Carpenter films. I like the way he, he directs things, the way he stages. Uh, he has a great feel for tone in films. Even if it's one of his more like... Uh, hated films like escape from la i'm gonna want to watch it just to have known yeah yeah i, I kind of feel that way about some like i like johnny depp's filmography there are a lot of movies he's made not in the u.s that i had never heard of hmm. um every once in a while there's a person you're interested in and so you just want to know their work and that works relationship with culture and yeah yeah and that that's 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 me with john john carpenter and uh I think that, it's me too. Yeah. And the way this came to John Carpenter, it was like, he, he, he had a thought that he wanted to see like uh, the way that I, I I've seen the quote, he wanted uh, to create some sort of ultimate evil uh, and combine it with like this uh, idea of, of matter and antimatter. And that's where Prince of Darkness came from. I don't know how much research he did on, on the subject, but you know, uh, there is a whole lot of talking in it and it, it, it almost doesn't matter the the talking it kind of gets drowned out in like the background and you're gonna like just get lost in the act in, in like the feel and tone of of everything uh i uh, when when i was watching it i saw alice cooper's name be brought up in in the credits and i had no idea that 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 that, that he was uh, gonna be in this he has no lines he's just a walking zombie that's that's it nice uh he kills one person in the entire movie and the way he kills the person is he takes this bike that he used in one of his uh, stage shows uh, and rammed it through one of the scientists that that's uh, researching the thing inside of a church. That's it. He's, 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 he's like, you know, like, like, like visually he's seen as like the leader of, of the zombie horde. Nice. Like the guy from army of the dead. Who's like, that's my wife. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, um, well, that is awesome. Mm. So, um, how does this feel to you as a staple like a cult fandom for john carpenter like everything about this film top to bottom is just completely john carpenter like and like the way it's shot like i love the tone of it and that's I like yeah that going back 
that's why I would go back to watch it as I like the feel of it, the sense of impending doom that surrounds every. A lot of people describe a big hallmark of John Carpenter is that he's telling even even when he gets to like an apocalyptic level set of consequences motivating the characters mm-hmm. he's still telling a story set in a small scale yeah and so it's like okay yes it's going to be doom and gloom the end of the world and the thing it's like yes it could be doom and gloom in the end of the world but it is the story of the scientists track there and it is in in you know escape from new york if you kill the president all oh, consequences for the world but it is the story of the one guy working his way down you know yes is that was that here that is here okay see that's it's so fascinating that it's like there's a movie called end of days starring uh, arnold schwarzenegger that is about this that is about the devil trying to tempt arnold schwarzenegger to stop him from stopping armageddon from taking place mm-hmm by tempting him regarding his family that he had lost. Okay. And the movie is trying so hard to be an Arnold Schwarzenegger vehicle that it's at odds with it being an intimate character study and a thriller about a psychological thriller about someone trying to move on from the loss of their family. Cause Satan is willing to fully give him back his family forever. If he'll just stop. And it's this idea of like the seduction of promises that people can give you and whatnot. And it's like the movie on paper sounds so much more interesting than what the movie is. But John Carpenter seems to know usually exactly how intimate the movie needs to be. Like, like just from the start, like the, like it's, the movie is incredibly slow paced. So it, it just kind of like lulls you into everything. But the downside to that is there's a lot of exposition. It's a lot of talking and a lot of setup. So that is, that can be very boring from time to time. And it, it, it almost lost me uh, until, until things started happening. Once, once Alice Cooper jumped in, I would love this quote to be slapped on to like every review of every John Carpenter movie ever, where you're like, in order to build a tone, everything is at first very slow and involves a lot of exposition. But then people start dying. <laughs> that quote, I'm pretty sure you could put that on most of his movies. Escape from New York. The, the Thing, Christine. Like, that's kind of a really great summary of like, he's either going to lose you or yeah. that's going to build your intrigue and build tension. And to me, when you say atmosphere, I always, I always think I hear what you mean, but I'm not sure the audience does. Okay. When you say atmosphere, I think you mean a potent sense of gradually increasing dread and tension. Yeah. So, because atmosphere, you know, you could have the atmosphere of the Shire that's built over the groundwork of the extras in the background and the peace that they have and take that and rip it away when you go to Mordor and you have these tones playing off of one another. Right. But a John Carpenter thick atmosphere of dread and tension. And then there's something about just like the, the choice of, I don't know if it's the choice of film stock or lenses. I don't know what it is because I don't, you know, have a experience a lot in that, but his movies feel like they have a grit and a grip on your eyeballs. Oh yeah, for sure. And there's this thing that he talked about 
uh, that was talked about in uh, behind the scenes making of Halloween. Mm-hmm. That is, you know, I've been talking about George Lucas and that those film school students as um, being students of pure quote unquote cinema. Yeah. That the images tell you the story. The interesting thing about Halloween is it's like the opposite. They, the way they talk about building the movie is about building the movie based on what you don't know and can't see. And that's a rule of thumb that people come when they're coming from more of an approach of storytelling. And it's weird because both of these things are cinema. It's what you can see and what you do with what you can see, but it's also arguably more about what you can't see. And so if you take something like Star Wars, okay? Mm-hmm. If you mute it, you can follow the whole story. If you take Halloween and you mute it, it's going to be really boring because people are talking and you don't have his music. Yeah. Up until all of a sudden everything's dark. Mm-hmm. And it's, I, it kind of blew my mind that John Carpenter is a guy who is like, he's such a visual director, but he's all about what you don't know and what you can't see. Yeah. Uh, and the same like theory, the, the same theory I think applies for uh, for uh, Prince of Darkness because it's it's that uh, the the big the, the big like like threat in the room is literally this this like jar of green goo and gel that's making that that's like dripping in reverse, like and and the the implication is that this 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 thing is influencing all the homeless people for whatever reason to come to the church and start attacking people within it. They're all homeless, by the way. I don't know why they're all homeless, but they're all homeless. Oh, I bet you that's thematic somehow. I bet you there's a reason for that. Yeah, but I think the most impressive thing about uh, Prince of Darkness is that the thing was shot in 30 days, one month, through the entire film. Uh, It could just be that it's, it's a small location, like you have a few shots on a college campus, and then everything is moved into this one church location and the mm-hmm. rest of the movie is shot there. It doesn't leave. Well, I mean, their, their, their team are like, like the people he works with are like students of practicality and minimalizing and working cheap. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. they talked about how his first movie, which was a sci-fi thing in space. Yeah. Had like no traction, but it was literally just Nick Castle running around in a beach ball as the alien <laughs> on his feet. Right. Just to get yeah. the shots. And then Assault on Precinct 13, which was not its original title, was shot bare bones as quickly as possible in one location, all to conserve their resources. Yeah. Halloween was shot in California to conserve their resources. So they painted leaves and then picked up all the leaves every time to pretend it was fall. Like, <laughs> yeah. And they're like, go, go, go. I think they shot Halloween and not too, it's not too much longer than that. Uh, probably like, like, yeah, like you can still see like green trees in the background with, with, with their leaves while the autumn leaves are falling down. And they pulled a sneaky, they used a, a steady cam, kind of steady cam. They used a type of new technology in order to get that first shot working. You know, we talked about with Christopher Nolan's following right now. I feel like in the movie where you are working heavily on the audio feeling professional and you're doing as professional of a thing as you can, mm-hmm. you get what you get in following and you get what you get in Halloween, which yeah. is you have this incredibly impressive feat of this four minute shot that only has one hidden cut right when the kid puts the mask on. Yeah. And 
they did it over and over again, even though they already had the take because the team was all working together and all this kind of stuff. And that level of work goes into last night in Soho and like it's everywhere. And I guarantee you it's on set in Prince of Darkness. Uh, probably. And there's like this one effect in Prince of Darkness that I really liked. It, it, it's, it's a very simple effect too. Like it's, 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 there, there are these transmissions that are coming to the scientists when, when they're sleeping, it's like a warning from the future. And it looks like it's, it's, it's on like, like a CRT uh, TV. What they, what, what they literally did is they shot the footage, played it on a TV, and then recorded it being played on a TV. And that's what they showed. Yeah. So, yeah. So this movie came out in 1987. Something like that, yeah. And uh, The Thing, I believe, was 84. And, I, you know, there's people who make associations with these, and we're going to talk about that another time. Mm-hmm. But... I feel like what you have is you have this team of people who are really used to working together, running and gunning as hard as they can. Mm-hmm. And by the time you get to the late eighties, you're, you're, he's in his peak, he's in his prime and his people would be working like a well-oiled machine. Yeah. So I don't know a lot of the behind the scenes. It could have been a nightmare. It could have been something where they just gave up halfway through and then turned what they had into a movie. <laughs> You know, who knows? Um, But I would be so interested to dive into that one. And I know there is a um, 4K release. And I know that there was at least a Scream Factory. There's been a Scream Factory release of a couple of his movies. Yeah, the the, the, the 4K one's also Scream Factory release for Prince of Darkness. I I I would eat it physically. And then just like let that ingest the data that was lasered into the discs seep into my blood. And so I guess that leaves us with continuing our saga uh, of bitching about Star Wars. Moving on. So the Empire Strikes Back. Fan favorite. One that everyone says is Pinnacle Star Wars. And George Lucas's least favorite. Yes. And also the least touched in the special edition. So immediate improvement in watching this on 4K. The sound is amazing. This one takes the strongest, almost negative hit when it comes to uh, high dynamic range because that this is like high contrast. So it's like, uh-huh, high contrast. Sorry, that's a, <laughs> uh, a thing. You can look up my YouTube channel. So dark blacks like the confrontation between luke and darth vader he's not just a silhouette he's like sinking into the background Uh um but something that i am absolutely adore but then has a symptom that i think carries through into return of the jedi the the blu-rays of star wars Uh featured a color corrected tone of magenta yeah all over them which causes Darth Vader's lightsaber to look pink, which causes uh, Hoth to look sort of like a little more saturated than it is. And it just, it does mm-hmm. so much to the color. Thankfully, like with most 4Ks that I've seen, that has been peeled off. But as a result, things like Darth Vader's lightsaber, which originally is like this striking red popping off the screen, mm-hmm. feels muted. It doesn't necessarily feel pink, but it just feels like the saturation is turned down. Okay. And it's weird because red and green are usually the colors that pop the hardest when I'm watching something, you know, on 4K. Yeah. And um, there are other moments where the details are just like startling and they pop up like crazy. 
the the issue I had with the New Hope, uh-huh. where when you have special edition scene changes, like you're, it's like glossed over and it's jarring. Uh-huh. They happen so rarely because you don't have to do that in most of these shots. Like it happens once when they're coming to Cloud City and the ships are trying to like prevent them from landing for a moment. Yeah. And it happens um, a couple of times during the battle on Hoth. But most of the time, this movie just looks spectacular and cold and Darth Vader feels chilling and imposing. Um, The thing I want to talk about with Empire Strikes Back is how much people complain about Star Wars changing, you know, like me last time. Um, And uh, it's funny. If you go from Darth Vader from episode four to episode five, you go from where are the plans? I want them alive. You know, like, you know, this kind of guy who then gets shot up by Han Solo and flips off into infinity. Okay. When he comes back, he's pensive and quiet and everything around him is humming and he's hungry and he's vulnerable and his helmet is being lowered onto a scarred face and there's a mystery being built around him Uh and obviously we're building up to this reveal that they had discovered in writing the movie that they were going to be able to pull off Uh and um, then you take Luke from episode 4 to episode 5 and unfortunately, poor Mark Hamill was in a car wreck, and that's why his face is different. Mm-hmm. Um, this is one of the reasons why the holiday special is one of the hilariously terrible things. They tried to cover changes in his face with like this very thick makeup, mm-hmm. and he looks like a Ken doll. <laughs> um, but in when you, by the time we get to the movie, you know mm-hmm. they wrote in that the Wampa attacks his face mm-hmm. to cover the fact that his face had changed which I honestly think it's something they could have gotten away with just not explaining at all. So Luke from episode four to episode five can suddenly move things with his mind. Okay. Uh That was never in the original. So the the force has changed. Okay. And now characters can speak to each other across distances, Darth Vader and Luke. They make that up right at the end of the movie. Uh Okay. Uh, force ghosts are a thing yep. introduced brand new so what the force is is changed with no explanation even when it gets to yoda now you get a hint at the end of episode of the original star wars that obi-wan can talk to luke from beyond the grave yes but you know he then arrives as a force ghost uh-huh. once but then he's still a voice in luke's ear and you don't 100 percent know what that means and Han Solo, you see him, he's the guy at the end who overcame this arc and wants to help the rebellion. But now he's dealing with this idea that he has to pay Jabba back. But he's so obsessed now with developing a relationship with Leia. Yeah. He's already at 100 from the beginning of the movie. Yeah, it, it's it's really weird. Almost. Yeah. like Because like, he he's saying goodbye. He wants Leia to have this like intense reaction to him going away. And when, and when she doesn't, well, he gets he gets pissed off. I'll just say he gets pissed off because, like, you know, in the first movie, he brings up whether them being together could happen to tease Luke, who's right. interested in Leia, and that's the last you hear of it. Yeah. And in this one, it's like they're gung ho for this romance, and I honestly feel like the whole world would be different if he didn't say "I know." Yeah. If he said "I love you too." 
I think as time had gone on and we had seen how aggressively he pursued her mm-hmm. and he didn't have that sort of suave influence of Harrison Ford, mm-hmm. we would be comparing him to Anakin. <laughs> I think you're right. And, and again, oh, God. It, it comes out of nowhere mm-hmm. in context of the first movie. Right. So what's fascinating to me is Empire Strikes Back is this huge swing at building almost entirely new everything. Yeah. Okay. New rules for the emperor. There's an emperor, you know? It's yeah. not just... I know they are the empire in the original, but the Imperial March wasn't even music in the original. Right. And I, I think they brought up the emperor in A New Hope, but like they, there's no communication with them. He's just like this, this figurehead that is just like this uh, mystery man. We don't see anything with him. Well... Kind of. I mean, I think they acknowledge they're an empire, but they don't really talk about it as if like they're high on the chain in terms of it. Nobody thinks of Darth Vader as being the emperor's right hand man. He's right. No, no. Yeah. yeah. They're, 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 they're all just cogs in the machine, including Darth Vader. Yeah. Well, and it definitely seems like a pecking order and it seems like Darth Vader's below the pecking order with um, Admiral uh, Tarkin. Tarkin. So um, that has changed. And, and it's just bizarre to me, just, just really wrapping your head around this, that until Empire Strikes Back came out, people were huge fans of Star Wars and they had never heard dun, 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 dun. They had never heard it. For three years, people were fans of Star Wars and that didn't exist. Right. So there's John Williams again, carrying the whole team. Mm-hmm. Um, no, he's not carrying the whole team. These movies are great. So Empire is... Uh, again, uh, iconic because they reverse the structure of the story. The big climactic battle is the inciting incident of the movie, and it gradually becomes more intimate until the characters are in a bad place, instead of the characters starting in a bad place and fighting the bad guys till they win. Okay. And that's intentionally George Lucas's second part of a story where the characters fall to their worst point when the trilogy is functioning as an overarching thing. Yeah. Empire completely upthrottled everything that seemed to work about the original mm-hmm. and just like like shot it hardcore. I have money shots again. Jeez. So <laughs> just shot it hardcore along the rails off into an original space mm-hmm. where it showed how much you could do with what you had. What you had is just a hero's story. What you did is you subverted expectations by taking a great Jedi Knight and making him Yoda. By taking the evil person in the galaxy and making him your father. It's, it's hilarious to me that Star Wars is what it was and George Lucas can look at this that really Star Wars is a whole different thing after Empire than what it was originally. Yeah. And George Lucas is like, that's my least favorite. There is a big deal, I think, about a villain being someone who has an arc that turns good in the original script for Star Wars that got split into three movies. Uh-huh. But I just don't think, I think when they figured out the hook that Darth Vader was going to be his father, uh-huh. it was like, oh crap, we cracked something. And I love this story. You can see it on the Grand Norton show that they didn't tell anyone that Mark Hamill was backed into a corner in his trailer, basically. <laughs> and they were like, I'm going to tell you something. And when you know, three people will know. It's going to be me, George Lucas, and you. 
It's like Irvin Kirshner, George Lucas, and him. And so if it gets out, we'll know it was you. And they told him that what they had on the script and what uh, the actor was going to say on set was Obi-Wan killed your father. But they needed Mark Hamill to act as if he said, I am your father. (laughs) So Mark Hamill was kind of overreacting to it because he had to pretend he said a line he didn't say. Right. And then he has this hilarious story about Mark Hamill's reaction. I'm going to let y'all Google that because I'm done pretending to be other people and other music and whatever right now. You know, to, to me, that's the most fascinating thing about rewatching it is it looks gorgeous in 4K. Mm-hmm. A lot of the upscaling holds up really well because a lot of it is just the film upscaling and whatnot. So it looks great. It's just weird that some iconic bits look muted after repealing some of the color correction. Mm-hmm. Um, the color grading, I should say. Um, and the the just just Empire as a standalone movie, thinking about what Star Wars is, and then you just add this one and don't take anything else into account uh-huh. is a wildly different experience. And it's it's fascinating seeing how something like The Less Jedi takes all these huge liberties without breaking any canon, and people like hate it yeah and around that time there was all this buzz of people talking about well people hated empire when it came out too yeah i don't think they lived in this modern world i think people (laughs) are gonna hate last jedi for a long time it's just it's it's the empire strikes back this story was star wars and then the empire strikes back and then return of the jedi yeah, you didn't have any of that. And back. now it's, well, it's episode four, A New Hope, and then episode five, The Empire Strikes Back, and it's episode six, The Return of the Jedi. And there'll be other episodes around it, and it'll, you know, like, whatever. It was mm. so, so big and brash and bold. and Yeah. And George Lucas started doing that, that, that episode stuff somewhere in, like, I think the early 90s, because that's when he was starting to get plans for episode one. Because that's how I remember seeing all those, is, like, Star Wars episode four, A New Hope. Oh, so where's episode one? I want to see that. Well, that doesn't yeah. exist. Why doesn't it exist? Uh, they were working on it. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. When we were like three-year-olds, that was already, I was already, ni- that was 94 for me. You got any other thoughts? What would make you watch Empire Strikes Back again? Um, it's, it's everything that I like about Star Wars. guys kind of like bundled into this nice little pack. You You start up with this like, uh, epic space battle then you fly off with luke and then you get to learn more about this about the force which is this mythical like way of of living essentially mm-hmm. like uh, that that we only touched on in in in, in episode four and then you get ex- that just it expands greatly and there and that, that is something that i've learned about me that i like is i i like things that involve world building and making things around what you're watching make sense in world and so the fact that you get a lot of that in empire is it's just, it's like I'm just like I'm a kid in a candy store at that point. To me, the thing that will always make me want to go back and uh, watch it is going to be uh, the luminous beings we are speech. Um, and it's just luminous beings we are, not this crude matter. Uh, you know, the sky, the rock, the trees. You know, yeah. It, we're a part of something and you know when you're when you're a part of something and you are free to reconceptualize your purpose in this world then anything really does become possible again 
And there's just something magical and freeing about it. So, mm-hmm. you know. I guess that's it for this uh, episode of this film, Not Rated. Thank you, everyone, for taking the time to listen to us ramble about the movies that we've watched this week. I am Curtis. You can follow me on Twitter at 90sGamer407, where you'll soon be able to find all of my other all the links to my other social media sites and i'm eric you can find me at high contrast flm and you can use that to link to all my other social media sites actually youtube channel whatever other stuff yeah and we're also remember we are tfnr cmel on twitter so you can actually follow this and drop comments and roast us and disagree with us there's a whole world out there of places that y'all bitch on the internet. You could please come do that on our place for a little bit. You're not going to do it. You're too chicken to do it. Do? So. <laughs> yeah, do or do not. There is no try. Yeah, dude. Go do it or don't do it. Except for do it. That's the only real option. There is no not do it. That's right. I may just made Yoda's quote better. Mm-hmm.